Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. Um, Kind of a, a funky day today, at least for me. I'm actually hosting today from New York. I'm sitting in, uh, of all places, my, my childhood home uh, back here in New York, actually, for, uh, for a bit of a reunion with some old friends and uh, taking the day to, uh, to spend some time with, with my family and uh, spend a little time with my, with my dad, uh, which, is, which is really fun. It's, it's nice to have um, these reminders to kind of put life and, and things in perspective. Um, you know, really excited about today's show and, and the topic um, and, and our guest talking about um, some, some aspects of the research that, you know, we haven't talked about in a while um, and, and some, you know, things about uh, the causes of autism and, and under, our understanding and, and getting some updates on, on that. Um, but before we get into that topic and before we start uh, talking to our guest today, you know, I, I want to share a little bit about uh, the experience I had yesterday. I, uh, before heading out to New York and, and coming out here, I, I spent the day in Phoenix, Arizona. I got an opportunity to spend the day with some, some new partners of mine at Autism Spectrum Therapies, um, a group of guys, really great group of guys, um, at the Desert Choice Schools, and it's a, it's a great program that has been specializing in working with kids with um, uh, emotional disturbance, um, some kids with conduct behavior, and they've just got this really great program. And, and just another great example of, of ABA being a science and being so much more than just autism, um, they incorporate so many different things of ABA and a cognitive behavior therapy into their approach. And we just had this great day and this great conversation. Um, got a chance to observe their program and learn more about what they were doing um, in, in the hope and the effort for the two of us together to spend more time collaborating. And I, I got to learn so much about what they were doing and got so many just sparks of, of just inspiration. And, 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 I, and I think we, we both found ourselves getting inspired by one another. Both got ourselves really excited about what they do and what I do and, and how they're, they really overlap so much that when we got to the core of the science of their clinical programs and the science of our clinical programs, we realized they just they made sense. They went hand in hand because they, they came from so many of the same principles. And what I got really excited about was the, this overall process that they had. Um, you know, they're working with you know, neurotypically developing children. They're dealing with kids with, with a different set of needs, um, but the approach was similar. And a big part of what they were doing was setting up structure, contingencies, routines um, for their students to really understand that life is full of choices. And they really wanted to help their students understand what were the, the consequences with each choice and that every time they're faced with a situation, a problem, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, they had a choice and that they had a degree of control. And um, I, I thought that was really cool. And it reminded me so much of some work I had done with a number of kids with Asperger's um, here in Los Angeles. Um, and that's what really sparked probably a good hour-long conversation of these different overlaps and these different things they're doing and we're doing and, and where we could take this together. Because that's so much of what I did. And what I found to be so effective with, with my students was a lot of that same philosophy of having my students really understand 
what their choices and what their behaviors, um, what those consequences were. So as there they're calling it choices and then they're calling, you know, the effects of those choices and looking at it. We would sit down and I would actually put together ABC sheets and have my own clients write out, okay, this is what I did. What led to me doing that? What was the antecedent? What was the consequence? Great, now let's map out the consequence of my behavior. And we put all that together and then paired it with self-management. And these two things just went hand in hand. So I'm really, really excited about you know, what we can do together as partners. But it was just this great reminder of just this approach, this science. It's so much more than this you know, one-dimensional or this stereotypical view we sometimes have of ABA, being you know, ABA is just like DTT. And, and there's just this great real-life hands-on reminder that, no, 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 there's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more to our science. And there's a, a whole wider uh, population and, and, and group of people who this therapeutic approach can help. So just a great, great experience and, and just a great reminder of, of uh, I guess, the power of the science that I've been working on and working in for so long. Um, well, let's, let's get to today's show, today's guest. Um, as I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about the research and, and maybe talk and get a little bit of a better understanding today about uh, our understanding of causes of autism and, and a little bit more about the diagnosis itself. Um, today I'm doing, uh, joined by uh, Dr. Raphael uh, Bernier. Um, he is a licensed clinical psychologist, the clinical director of Seattle Children's Autism Center, as well as an associate professor at the University of Washington. Uh, he received his PhD at the University of Washington and in his clinical training at UCLA. He also holds degrees from the University of Wisconsin and Tufts University. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bernier uh, is the cl- has clinical and research interests that span many different aspects of autism, from genetics and neuroscience to diagnostic characterization and cognitive behaviorally based interventions. As a clinician, he's authored over 50 publications, as well as authored the book Autism Spectrum Disorders, a reference handbook, and as the principal investigator on a number of NIH and foundation-funded research studies, he's interested in bridging the gap in our understanding of the relationship between ideology, neurological underpinnings of deficits in social cognition, and the behavioral presentation of autism spectrum disorder. Uh, Dr. Bernier, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, re- I'm just so it's excited to have you. When, when we were kind of organizing and getting the, the dates together and planning some of the, the things we were going to talk about, it hit me, the, the things that you're working on, your research interests, are topics we really haven't covered on the show in quite a long time, and it feels like given those, the recent CDC findings and, and the DSM-5 coming out, this is like the perfect time to have you here. <laughs> perfect. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad it's a good fit, definitely. Um, so I was kind of hoping to get like a big picture starting off point, you know, and, and kind of ask you, a, I guess, a pretty broad question, but to kind of tee it up mm-hmm. is, you know, from what you're seeing, from what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. what – what are we seeing? What is the science really telling us about the causes of autism? Yeah. Well, that, you're right. I think that is a very, very big question. And, uh, and I, I kind of like to think about it in the context of, of the work that I've been doing in mm-hmm. autism. Uh, when I first got involved, I was this is the, the, mid, the mid-90s, and I had gotten involved uh, in the research world. And at that time, you know, we said, well, we kind of know what we think or believe to be the causes of autism, and about 5% of all, of all cases, we can kind of figure it out what's going on in terms of whether it's a, a particular exposure, um, like um, uh, rubella infection in, uh, in utero, or it's a, a fragile X. Um, and we sort of knew what sort of caused autism in about 5% of cases, and, and that's kind of where we were at, you know, 20 years ago. And in that time, we've made pretty significant headways in terms of us being able to identify at least the, the strong genetic contribution in about 25 to 30% of all uh, individuals with autism, which is, you know, it's, it's still not where we should be, where science is still lagging, but uh, I think we've made a lot, a lot of headway in the past two decades and starting to 
piece out and, and identify what's going on. I think the tricky thing here is that we're not just looking for one type of thing that sort of causes or contributes to autism. We're looking at at least 1,000 different things, at least coming from the genetic side of, uh, side of things, that are going to contribute to autism. And that's what's really what has made it so complicated. But I think we're slowly sort of, sort of just you know, picking away at the uh, uh, kind of at the walls of uh, sort of you know in our way to figure out what's going on. Um, so I think that's the the big that's the, the the big response. I think we've made a lot of headway in the past two decades, mm -hmm. um, and and part of that is we've actually learned that you know we're not talking about just you know one or two different things that sort of cause autism, but really literally a thousand different things. Uh, and, and really, in that even that understanding is really only about three or four years old that we've been able to understand that due to new um, genetic technology that that has advanced. Um, so that's kind of like the big picture, the big picture response I would say. I think um, you know we've made a lot of headway, and and I would say the two big steps in that um, one is the uh, the advent of, of technology in terms of genetics uh, about. Uh, Ten years or so ago, we were able to, to uh, utilize new methods to identify very small, tiny structural changes in our DNA. And by identifying those, we were able to start to piece out, ah, indeed, individuals uh, with autism are at increased likelihood of having these particular small, tiny little deletions and duplications throughout the genome. That was one big change that helped us sort of move forward. And the second was, was the advent of what's called exome sequencing, where we can actually go through and scan through all the different genes in our genome identify are there any genes that, that aren't working properly? They're not creating the proteins that they're supposed to be creating. Uh, and is that uh, maybe what's happening in, in another group of individuals with autism? And so taken together, along with our better understanding about, uh, about genetics and that genes never act alone. And that's not how genes work. Genes always act in accordance with their environment. And by environment, I mean um, the, uh, a couple different things. One, I mean the genetic environment, that is what other genes are operating and functioning and, and ongoing at a time. I mean things like the uterine environment. How is the uterine environment uh, impacting how those genes are expressed? Uh, so it's that we've learned a lot about the different types of genes that could be involved in autism and the genetic contributors, and we've learned a lot about how gene and the environment interact. And that's what's helped us uh, sort of make those gains in the past 20 years. Wow. You know, the, the thing that I'm blown away by is the <laughs> thousand different things. How, yeah. how is that? Is it that there's, you know, you talked about um, deletions and duplications, and there's all these different mm -hmm. uh, genes that could delete and duplicate. Is it that there's mm -hmm. a thousand different genes could do that, or is there something different? Like, what... what how do we have a thousand different things that could could uh, cause that? Fair enough. Well, that's, that's a great question. And so, uh, so a lot of that work is actually um, so that identification of that, that number, a thousand, uh, it really stems from work that we've done. It's literally just come out in the past few years. So, um, I'll sort of kind of walk you through our steps of how we got there. But uh, awesome. about let's see, it was about five or six years ago. I was working with uh, folks, uh, great collaborators here at the University of Washington in Genome Sciences, uh, a youngster named Brian O'Rourke, and then uh, Evan Eichler here is a uh, professor in Genome Sciences. And uh, we're working together to, to think about, um, are there ways we can identify new gene, uh, sort of events or changes to genes in kids with autism uh, that are new, that is, we would find genes that seem to be functioning appropriately in mom and dad, but in, in the kiddo uh, with autism, they don't seem to be uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing, creating the protein that they're supposed to create. And so um, what we did was uh, we did an initial pilot study by identifying 20 families for whom we thought, okay, these might be likely families where we'd start to identify some of these new changes. And so we chose these 20 families was um, we looked through family histories and said, okay, are, are there, is there any history of autism anywhere in the family? Um, uh, are, are, you know, are there any uh, challenges that are related to autism that we're seeing in any other family members? Uh, if no, then great, let's, let's take a look and, and enroll these families in the study. And what we did with these 20 families is we then sequenced every single gene coding region in, in their genome. It's kind of a monumental undertaking given the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of genes we have um, uh, uh, in, uh, in our body. And 
what we were able to identify from that initial pilot study was that there was uh, a, a small subgroup of those kids, about four of those uh, 20 kids. There was a very particular gene. Um, they're all separate genes. Each child had a different gene uh, that was disrupted. That was impacting the way brain cells were communicating and interacting and connecting. So this is just a first pilot study. We thought, okay, well, all right, we worked with 20 families. We found four things that seem to be uh, disrupted in terms of the way the brain is functioning and, and um, in terms of the way brain cells are functioning and, and adhering to one another. So we then replicated that process with 200 families. Um, as, you, as you might imagine, that policy is critical because to do this, it costs about $20,000 per family to actually do that wow. sequencing process. And so then we needed that pilot study to say, hey, this is important and valuable uh, so that we could then go ahead and apply for the funds to do that in 200 families, which is what we thought was really going to be kind of um, uh, the, really the, the, the premier way to, to identify what's going on. And well, there was news that was exciting and sobering. So the exciting news uh, based on that work with exome sequencing in 200 families was we found in, uh, in 50 of those 200 families and 50 of those children, we identified um, the very particular genes, again, that were disrupted, that impacted the way brain cells uh, communicate and adhere and connect, and importantly, the way um, genes that are disrupting the way other genes turn on and off. And that's kind of a key, key, key point that I'll come back to in a moment. So, so what we did was we thought, okay, great, we've identified um, 50 particular um, genes that are playing a contributory role in autism, but here's the tricky thing. There weren't any, um, there were, well, there, I shouldn't say there weren't any, only two of those genes do we find in more than one child. That is, all these were separate, different genes. And so wow. then we said, wow, holy cow, yes. We thought, this is not helping us get anywhere. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is really sort of sobering. Um, what we did was then calculated based on the number of genes that we believe could be playing a potential role, that is genes that are expressed in the brain, based on the sample of individuals we worked with as 200 uh, individuals, and based on the number of genes that we found that were impacted, our estimates were that there's probably about 800 genes or so that are contributing um, to autism. And so then in that same journal, this is published in Nature uh, in 2012, in that same issue of, of Nature, another group is doing very similar work at Yale and they published their findings uh, based on also another group of 200 individuals, a different group of 200 uh, families. And they found, again, very similar findings to ours, but their estimates were that we're talking about upwards of about 1,000 genes that are, that are impacted. So that's kind of where we get to that number of saying, uh, wow, there's about 1,000 different things um, in terms of genetic events. So we're really talking about 1,000 different genes that are playing some strong contributory role into to what happens with autism. Um, so, oh, I want to circle back just that one quick point I meant about uh, I made about um, genes that are that active and uh, that are expressed in the brain, but also genes that turn on and off other genes. Um, so, one of the things we we found in our uh, in our group here of, of 50 individuals who had uh, a, uh, who had a particular uh, gene event, that many of those genes were acting uh, part of a, a common protein network. So, these are genes that interact and work work together, and and one of the ways that they come together is many of them are involved with the way uh, genes turn and off, on and off genes at certain times in development. So, so you know, genes aren't always just, like, they don't just code for, like, I'm sort of thinking back to, like, you know, sophomore year biology when, you know, for me, I had Mr. Messenger who I sat in front of class and he had chalk all over, his, uh, all over his chest and he was, like, talking really fast about Gregor Mendel and his peas and you get a gene for green and a green for, and a gene for yellow-colored peas. And that's kind of, you know... 30 years ago, that's what I was thinking about genetics. Um, we've come a long way. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so genes, uh, one thing that we know about genes is they're not always turned on. They're not always creating proteins at any given time. They create proteins when they need to, like say, for example, oral brain development. And those genes turn on and say, hey, make this brain cell go in this region, in this part of the brain, and turn on and start doing what it's supposed to do. And other times, uh, genes will not be turned, they'll be turned off, and they won't be expressing their protein. And there are genes that turn uh, on and off other genes. And that's what we're finding in, in, uh, in many of the genes that were implicated that we identified were playing a role in how genes turn on and off sort of downstream, so to speak. Um, 
which to me, again, speaks to that important role of, of the gene-environment interaction. That is, genes turn on and off at certain times in development, say in utero, and if there's genes that are impacting when genes turn on and off in certain times in development, that could be problematic uh, if it's not turning on and off at the appropriate times. That was a mouthful. Oh. <laughs> no, it is. And it's, <laughs> man, I, I have to stop for a second. I can't help but laugh. You're talking about mm. uh, your biology class because I'm like, I had that biology class. I remember the, the teacher <laughs> with the chalk all over him. I remember the green right. and the yellow. Uh, so I, I think we, we, a lot of us have that kind of foundation. Um, right. But you, you know, you talk about environment, and, and I, I appreciate you making the distinction about you know what you mean by the environment. But I can't help to kind of swing it back to what we kind of think about with the environment. And, you know, hearing this, okay, great, there's these thousand different genes. This, you know, they're, these things are, are uh, activating or deactivating. Do, do we know what it is? You know, is there, is there things that we start to identify that say, this is what makes this or leads to this happen? And is it other environmental factors that trigger that? Like, have we gotten that far yet? Yeah, well, we're starting to make headway. We certainly have gotten, not gotten. We certainly have not gotten to where we need to be, for sure. And uh, uh, for sure, I sort of I struggle often, again, as a clinician when when working with a family, because I I, I feel compelled to want to share as, as sort of to provide answers that just aren't there yet. So there's a lot of things we haven't yeah. figured out yet, but we are making headway. Um, in terms, and, and I think what's complicated about that is we talk about as many different genetic contributors. You know, a thousand different genetic contributors. There's even more uh, in terms of environmental contributors, in terms of all the different things that are out there and exposures that individuals can have, um, uh, different experiences folks can have, uh, again, in utero or uh, what have you, and those are going to impact our genetic structure. So I'll give me an example. Um, one, thing, one of the things we have learned a lot about is that uh, increased paternal age can contribute to the risk of autism. So sure. we know for a long time incre increased maternal age plays a role in, in other, uh, such as Down syndrome, for example. Um, but we're learning more about increased paternal age playing a role in autism. And one of the ways we've started to identify that is that what we're finding is that individuals, uh, men of increased uh, age tend to have greater numbers of these changes that happen to their DNA where genes stop sort of doing what they're supposed to be doing mm -hmm. as in germline cells. So essentially, you know, sperm cells are created over and over and over and over. Every time they're replicated, what ends up happening is there's a chance that something sort of, uh, some gene might not sort of work properly uh, when it's right. replicated. And so as we increase our age, then there's a greater likelihood of these sort of uh, events happening. And so there's an example of how the environment that is in the context of paternal age is going to increase yeah. or lead to a greater risk of a gene event or a gene change that could be potentially uh, problematic. Um, so, so that's not going to account for everything, but that's going to help, help us to understand that that's one potential contributor. Another thing we've started to find uh, is that, and, and I say this not sort of wanting for folks to get nervous or, or get uncomfortable, um, but um, infections um, in utero when uh, when uh, when moms have significant significant infections in utero, there's an increased uh, risk of autism in individuals for whom um, mom had a significant illness during uh, during pregnancy, uh, and that's not the case for all. There's lots of families for sure out there that that have an event where where mom has got a significant illness and does not go on to develop autism. But some things we're finding is that if folks have a particular uh, genetic susceptibility, that is, they might have a small deletion or duplication and mom has a, uh, a, a, some sort of significant illness during, during pregnancy, that increases the likelihood that the challenges the child is going to have are much greater. So, uh, and this, this work isn't, hasn't been published yet. We're sort of uh, finishing and finalizing that, um, that work, um, submitting it shortly. But um, it really, again, suggests that there's an interplay then in terms of not only a genetic um, event susceptibility in that sense, but also then... Um, maternal infection uh, contributing to that. So, so there's, a couple different, there's a couple different things in ways we're making, making forward uh, momentum in terms of that gene-environment interaction, but you know, still, we're behind the times. So the science needs to step up, that's for sure. What I find really, 
When you say science needs to step up, I I can't help. I I did the math while you were talking before, and (laughs) I thought it was fascinating when you said it's $20,000 per family Mm -hmm. for the study that you guys did to put them through Mm -hmm. that testing. And I did the math. So if it's $20,000, 200 families, that's $4 million. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, 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 when to hear you say we we science has got to step up, I, I you know, <laughs> I, I get that point of view as as a, as a scientist, and I think it's like a member of a community. I'm like, oh my god, it costs four million dollars to do a study mm-hmm. that you hope is going to result in the findings you got. But I know mm-hmm. a lot of them. You have to do a lot of trial and error and rule things out right. sometimes to rule things in. And that's that, right, right, I sure. I knew it was expensive, but to do the math <laughs> and, and have this conversation was a little jaw dropping to me. Yeah, 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 for sure, right? And that's and that's actually a fair point. Is there there are a lot of folks that are kind of pushing forward the sort of the science envelope, and I actually think a lot of that is um, I wouldn't say in autism is really driven by um, families and parents, and it's just doing a great job. And there's no doubt there's funding coming from NIH, um, but the work that supported a lot of this genetics work is actually work from a private foundation, the Simons Foundation, um, okay. and uh, and so there there is there is science moving forward. You know, Autism Speaks is, uh, has a large um, uh, you know. Uh, you know, pot of funds that they're using to support science as well. So, right, I shouldn't just yeah. say science is moving slowly because there's a lot of support there. But I think that just the process, of course, because as you mentioned, you know, there's uh, we take we take risks sometimes, and then we have to also demonstrate um, what things aren't working and what kind of rule things out, and that that just takes time for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, now's a perfect time for us to to do a couple commercials, take a couple minute break. Um, so let's play a couple commercials, and then we'll be right back and, and hop back into this conversation because I, I feel like I've got another like eight to ten questions easy <laughs> once we get back. <laughs> sounds great. Sounds great. All right. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission, to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host or today's guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Kind of the way I like. Hey, welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. Uh, those commercials go so much faster than I expect them to, and, and all we are ready to go. And um, But I'm actually excited because... I'm just ready to get back into our conversation uh, with uh, Dr. Bernier. Um, you know, during the break, I, I was talking to you about some of the, the research that I got exposed to early on um, with regards to the genetics and um, a presentation I got to see a, a few years back by Dr. Corshane at UC San Diego. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of interesting to kind of hear what you're doing, pair it side by side, and get that understanding of, okay, so I... I can see these genes are triggering these things or activating or deactivating. And I know he's talked about how certain things activate in the brain a little too early. So you can, I, 
I, I, I feel like I'm starting to get the sense of, okay, the brain isn't, it's supposed to go a certain path, and now genes are making things happen off kilter. And our brain, the brain is developing on a different schedule, essentially, compared to everything else. Is that, is that a fair kind of summary of, of what we're talking about? I think I think that's an actually excellent summary of, uh, of what we're talking about, um, right? Because that's a that's a key thing is that you know genes don't code for behavior; they code for various proteins, which code for uh, various cells in our body and and where these cells go in our body. That is where in the brain they they sort of migrate to and eventually land and live, uh, and how those cells then connect up with one another and how they communicate with one another, how they function in an ongoing way, and that's kind of what genes are doing, and so it's really uh, you know that's that's one that's one step of the puzzle. The next step is then so how are the how is this playing out in the brain? And that's another area where we've made a lot of headway for sure. Um, you know, with the use of imaging technology, with the use of EEG, now we have a much better understanding of kind of where things um, uh, where I would say differences are in a sort of a, I would say in a gross way differences are in the brain um, for kids with autism from from other individuals, uh, and also the timing that is which things are, are functioning in a different time frame, um, and so. Well, you know, one of the ideas is that we're still not there yet, but one of the ideas is that um, with particular genetic disruptions, we see particular um, potential overgrowth at certain times where there's where you don't get appropriate pruning of of neurons. That is, you know, what happens is um, you know, those brain cells are growing in our brain, and then through experience and development, we prune away some of those connections. If we don't get that pruning, the brain continues to grow and grow and grow, and that's sort of one of the theories for why we see potential uh, sort of increased head sizes in many kids with autism, and that kind of ties into what uh, Eric, Dr. Christian has been doing, um, and that's yeah. really fascinating work in linking that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I hear genetics, and mm-hmm. I, I think about testing. You know, I think about um, mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I, I was always fascinated, I, kind of fascinated in my own way is, uh, so I, I'm Jewish, and I uh, learned uh, early on as like a, I think I was 12 or 13, maybe a little bit older, they taught us about Tay-Sachs disease and how it's, you know, mm-hmm. a, a genetic um, disease. It's it's something that is very common in uh, the Jewish community. And I, and I always thought that was interesting. And I, and I think back upon that now as I, as I learn and speak to different people about autism and about, um, you know, culture and autism and these different things. But that was something that, I know we could test for, and, and they were actually saying, mm-hmm. you know, as you as you grow up and you start to plan a family, you can test for these things. Do do you think is the research showing us that that's something we may be able to do down the road as it relates to autism? So I think that's an excellent question. Uh, for for uh, and so my short answer is going to be is going to be perhaps potentially. In the future, <laughs> that's my mm-hmm. that's insurance. My long answer for that is is kind of this story. So, um, okay. about uh, about six years ago or so, seven years ago, I was working with um, folks here at the Simons Foundation uh, in New York City, and we were involved in uh, a very large collaboration called the Simon Simplex Collection, and worked with about 2,800 families around around the country. It was all a study, uh, well organized, well designed study, focusing on uh, gene discovery and specifically looking for um, uh, these sort of copy number variations, that is, these little tiny deletions and duplications throughout the genome. And if in that work, uh, as we were plugging through that, we were doing some analysis, and it turned out that um, there's one particular type of event, a particular event on chromosome 16, on the sort of short arm of chromosome 16, mm-hmm. where there was either a deletion where the chunk is missing or is duplicated. And, and that seemed to account for about 1% of all the individuals in that whole study. So as, as a... As a probably the most common single most event that would contribute to autism from a genetic perspective, and that's 1% of all, of all cases. That's the estimate. Um, and that's being the most common. So I just want to – I underscore that just to highlight how, gosh, variable it is, the whole, the whole thing. So, so what we did, though, is we thought, holy cow, if we focus on identifying individuals around the country with this particular event, we'll have a much better understanding of what's going on with autism. So we started a whole new study. Um, and where we focused on working with families from around the country, around the world, who have a particular, this particular uh, genetic event, deletion or duplication on chromosome 16. Turns out, when we, uh, what, what ended up happening was only about 25% of all the kids that had this particular genetic event 
had autism. The types of behaviors that we saw, we saw a lot of kids with language disorder, with um, coordination difficulties, with, um, with articulation problems, and again, about 25% of kids had autism. And then there were also plenty of kids also that ended up to be developing pretty typically. So that says to me, Holy cow, even when we have what we believe to be maybe one of the kind of uh, most consistent common contributors to autism, if you have that particular event, it does not even mean you're going to have autism. Wow. And so that becomes very difficult if we think about genetic testing, if we're trying to say, you know, hey, uh, you know, we've got this particular event, uh, we need to think about autism. We might want to think about autism, but but it also could cause some undue worry. And my example for that would yeah. be one of the individuals in that, that study um, who came through, he was a two-year-old boy, and I met with the parents, and I was like, well, you know, at the time, this was our youngest child that had participated in the study, and the parents had um, had um, testing in utero, actually, some genetic testing uh, for some other reasons, and identified that uh, this 16P1.2 event in this, for this particular child. And, the, and at the time, again, this is six years ago, at the time, the, the geneticist said, well, you know, there's a chance of autism. That's probably what's going to happen. And so when the parents finally came in to see me, and this child was developing as typically as I could imagine a, a young child is, uh, would be developing, just totally really, really well. Uh, and this, the parents were terrified. They said, this is what we're told because he has this particular genetic event that he's going to have autism. You know, we've been stressed about this for two years. You know, talk to us, talk to us. Anyway, we've been able to follow this child, and it turns out he has not developed autism. But to me, it's a good example of where we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but let me contrast it, contrast it with one other example. Okay. Um, uh, really quickly, one, we, uh, we did identify a particular um, event which breaks a particular gene that when we've gone out, uh, so we've identified that in a, in a large number of individuals with autism, and then we went out and looked at large groups of folks who have other uh, you know, developmental disabilities or we have DNA for them for other reasons. And it turns out no matter which way you identify uh, the individual has this particular uh, broken gene essentially, the kids all seem to have autism, or the adults all seem to have autism. And yet we don't ever see this broken gene in any siblings of kids with autism or any typical individuals, uh, typically developing individuals around the world. So to me, there's particular genes that might be really strongly tied to autism, and we can be a little more predictive about what's happening. Um, and there's going to be other events that aren't going to be as predictive, like the 16P1.2 event. Uh, I'm curious. So, so yeah. Oh, sorry, I, I, what I was going to say is I'm just curious about are you seeing, you know, with this gene, this broken gene that you're seeing and it's consistent, mm -hmm. is the um, the autism, sorry for lack of a better term, like symptoms, like are these mm -hmm. individuals falling on the same point of the spectrum where you can say potentially this gene is showing a deficit, this May, maybe even the case you said before, maybe it's only a 25% chance of autism, but of those 25% people who did get diagnosed with autism, they all present with similar, um, I guess, characteristics or similar functioning level within this wide spectrum. So that's exactly, exactly the line of research that I think we need to be taking more to, to answer the, to sort of, to figure out what's going on with autism, because that is in fact exactly what we found with these particular individuals. So, wow. Yeah, so it's exactly, we found a particular pattern with a particular gene where these particular individuals all had significant uh, gastrointestinal problems, which we realize happens throughout, and that's that's mm -hmm. you know that's very common, but sure. um, in kids with autism. But this is a very particular group that seems to um, have it so consistently that even you know when doing statistical analysis, we could demonstrate that wow, this is a significant increased rate in gastrointestinal problems for this particular subgroup, as well as they had particular profound sleep difficulties and a very subtle but recognizable facial phenotype. That is, the eyes are a little bit more wide set. Um, the, uh, they, there's a pointed chin. The eyes slant uh, down slightly. There's a prominent forehead. So, but you would never sort of notice that as a clinician. I would never pick that up because it's subtle enough unless you're seeing kids one after the other, as we could do if we're doing a genetics-first approach. So you know, we identified this particular gene, then we started contacting families with this particular gene event. And when I saw them in the clinic one after the other, 
I could see the patterns, but I couldn't see it if they were interspersed, you know, every 500, 600, you know, 700 kid I saw with autism. Sure. Subtle enough that you wouldn't pull it all together. Um, but that's exactly what we're doing, because I think that's exactly the way to, to, to figure out what's going on. Because we I mean, start seeing these patterns, they emerge, yeah. I, that's just, it's so exciting to hear that, because, I mean, as, as a clinician doing the intervention, I mean, I, I, my mind immediately goes to, if you're saying that they're all presenting with some of these, the same problems, it, okay, there's a sleeping problem here. We've got the, the gastro problem. I mean, the logical next step is, okay, let's now track intervention, and could we eventually get to a place where you yes. could see this genetic, we identify this gene, this gene comes with certain symptomology, the certain symptomology should therefore be treated by the following interventions, and do we at least get that? So to your point, maybe we can't yes. say at birth this is child has, is going to have autism, but mm-hmm. maybe we can at least say, okay, this child has been diagnosed with autism, here's the gene, now here's your prescribed interventions. Exactly, and that's exactly, I think, the answer for targeted treatments because we've been a struck, you know, there's a lot of things that are effective as you were just chatting about earlier on in terms of uh, behaviorally based interventions. That's great, but now we can specifically target based on a particular event as opposed to saying we're going to apply this tool broadly to us and we can say we're going to apply this pattern of tools in this particular set of tools because this we know this particular group, we can really target the treatment appropriately. I think it's exactly where... That's exactly where we want to go. I think it's. Yeah. I think it's the answer. I mean, it just it um, just makes which me we think about. Do. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say we wouldn't be able to do this even you know five or six years ago without having had um, you know the advances in genetic technology and the support from foundations and and, and NHSA. Let's identify the particular genetic contributors. So. Wow. Yeah. I. I God, I, I'm, my mind is, is working like overtime right now because it's just like all these different thoughts are popping into my head. Like that's probably why this happens, and that's probably why we've seen this, and that's why parents are probably <laughs> reporting that. Um, but yes. before I get too far ahead of myself and, and, and almost go into a, more of a practical rather than a, a what if or, or how can we, um, I know it's a short window. It's been only a couple of years mm-hmm. that this has really been – able to be identified, as you, as you said, at the top of the show. Um, mm-hmm. But I know diagnostics is a big part of your interest in what you do as well. And mm-hmm. is, is, this, is all of this research changing the way we look at diagnostics, not just for the future, as we're, we're talking about, but mm-hmm. today? You know, is this already having an impact on, on what happens in the day-to-day diagnostic world uh, presently? Yeah, well, definitely for sure. So, um, I think one example would be um, even the, the changes that happened with the DSM-5 uh, coming out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's certainly, there's, you know, there's a discussion in the scientific literature, there's a discussion in the clinical community, there's a discussion in the parent community about uh, kind of the pros and cons of making that switch from the DSM-4 uh, diagnostic process to the DSM-5 mm-hmm. diagnostic process. But I'll just talk a little bit about how some of the science has informed that decision. Um, which is, you know, with the DSM-4, there are three behaviorally defined diagnostic subtypes of autistic disorder, Asperger's syndrome, and PDD-NOS, and those are all behaviorally defined. Um, and what, uh, what sort of the field has been doing for many years is trying to say, well, okay, we've got these behaviorally defined subtypes. Do they parse mm. out into uh, genetic ideologies in any way? And it turns out they haven't. There has not been any finding where that, their, the genetic contributors have, have divvied up or, or, or sort of yeah, fit into any of those categories. Uh, similarly, interventions aren't truly tied to a particular uh, diagnostic subtype either. There are things that may work for a kid with a diagnosis of autistic disorder uh, that would also work for a kid with a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, but it's not going to differentiate. That diagnosis won't differentiate particularly the type of treatment that's going to be most effective. Mm-hmm. And then lastly... When you look at the expert diagnosticians around the country, um, this is a study that we had, uh, that we had done, uh, published back in 2011. Um, when you look at expert diagnosticians around the country who uh, make a diagnosis of autism, and we have very good tools for saying does someone does someone uh, you know meet criteria for the autism spectrum or not, we're really good at that. But then um, 
when looking at expert diagnosticians around the country, for the life of us, we can't in any reasonable way differentiate who goes into which sort of subcategory, that is, which kid should get autistic disorder versus which kid should get an Asperger's syndrome diagnosis versus which kid gets PDD, NOS. It turns out that it's all very idiosyncratic. So, which is kind of a sort of a, a blow to my ego as a clinician. I think, oh, that's horrible. Um, but I think it speaks to making the definition at the, bio, at the, at the behavioral level is not really super effective. So oh. out comes the DSM-5, which sort of collapses all three of these subtypes into one subgroup, um, which, uh, again, for better, ultimately is not going to be the final answer, but I think it's a step in the right direction in terms of moving away from a behaviorally, bi behaviorally defined subtypes. Because we can't target our treatments to those. We, there's no ideology time to them, and clinicians aren't good at it. But, as we were chatting about, if we can define the subtype based on uh, the genetic, uh, the genotype, the genetic findings, such as, oh, you have this particular gene mutation, or you have this particular uh, copy number variation, or deletion or duplication, then we can use that, di that genetic diagnostic subtype to help target our treatments better, just as you were saying. So, so the way the DSM-5 works now is there's actually a section now that's included in, that, in, in the diagnostic process, say, you know, uh, uh, a clarifier for the diagnosis, say you meet autism spectrum disorder, uh, and it's associated with a particular genetic event, uh, if it is. And for some folks, mm -hmm. it's been identified. For some, it hasn't. So that allows science and the clinical field to start gathering the information that's relevant so we can figure out what are those targeted treatments that are going to be most helpful for these genetically defined subtypes. So, so I guess my point is I think uh, with that transition DSM-4 to DSM-5, which I think is a challenge and, and, and certainly can be a struggle, I think yeah. um, it paves the way to more easily move to a genetically defined um, subtype as opposed to behaviorally defined subtype. Yeah. I mean, to hear that explanation, it, ma it makes so much more sense of, you know, I, I'm kind of glad we went in this order because, you know, having this genetic foundation that you provided us, it, it makes more sense. Like, I'm, my mind immediately went to, well, if we've got a thousand different reasons, why would we break things up into three different categories? It, you're probably mm -hmm. almost, it almost makes more sense now to lump everything together and embrace that mm -hmm. within this big category. There's a thousand different things really going on. Or, or could go yeah. on, um, mm -hmm. now let's start right. trying to identify. It's just that, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's a difficult transition. It's like it's taking, uh, I almost, it reminds me of kind of moving from um, the state funding model to an insurance funding model. It's like you go from a therapeutic <laughs> model to a medical model, and there's some growing pains, right. even if it does lead to, in some cases, something better um, or, or no real change. Um, it, it just can be headaches along the way. So it sounds like it's kind of a similar right. type of process for us with the DSM-5. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, think, that's, I think that's kind of what's going on with, with that change. I th the other piece I would think is that I, I, what I envision is eventually we're going to start defining these genetically defined subtypes um, mm -hmm. individually. And so, you know, much as this, you know, Fragile X for years was called autism, in terms of that was how you diagnose until we identified, oh, there's this particular genetic event. And now we have a name for it. It's Fragile X, and then we know the specific targeted treatments that are specific for Fragile X. I think mm -hmm. 10 years from now, I think that's where we're going to be with very particular gene events. We're going to say, oh, uh, we have, you present with autism and have an ADNP gene uh, event. Okay, we're going to call this this. And, oh, you have this particular gene event. We're going right. to call this that. I think that's where we're going to get to, um, again, with the goal for actually identifying appropriate targeted treatments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, it, yeah. it feels like that, it, with that goal in mind, it, it feels like something people can really rally around, and, and more mm -hmm. than just families. I would think that that idea of this research leads to targeted treatments, politicians mm -hmm. can get behind that, insurance companies, <laughs> schools, yeah. like all these different mm -hmm. things that we don't necessarily think about as the autism community, but who interact with the mm -hmm. autism community. Like, I feel like that's... Uh, a rallying point that a lot of people can get behind. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
I think there's some there's some potential and real hope. And I, I really am very optimistic. I sort of you know was sort of sort of bashing science's pace earlier on uh, today, but. It, I do want us to move. I do want science to move faster, but I also think we are making some significant gains, and I'm really, I'm just really optimistic and positive and hopeful for, uh, for being able to kind of make some meaningful change for families here. So yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I, yeah. I thank you so much. I mean, this is, this has truly been one of my favorite shows in, in quite a while. I just, I feel like I've learned so much, and. I mean, I know, I know you gave me a very basic, and all of us kind of a, a basic overview. But I don't know. I feel very equipped and, and excited to be able to um, to be able to maybe start pointing some some people or have this conversation again with some people who mm-hmm. maybe are asking some yeah. of these questions about genetics and, and how it plays into um, into all of this. Is there is there any like parting words or, or, or last thing we should understand that to kind of about everything we've talked about, because I know it's, I feel like we've covered a lot in a very short amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> we have, yeah, I feel like sort of a spanning a little bit of neuroscience, touching on yeah. different genetic events, thinking of how that ties to, to diagnosis. Yeah, definitely a uh, kind of a, an earful or a mouthful. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I guess, I, I guess my parting thought truly would be that, um, we'll kind of circle back to kind of what I said at the beginning, is I think we've come a long way uh, in, in 20 years. Um, you know, on top of that, I'll sort of just insert one little other final piece of there. We've got we've got a lot of increased awareness. We've got a lot of folks that are focusing. We've got a lot of research moving forward, understanding um, the the causal factors in autism, and that helps us guide what our our specific target achievements are going to be. Um, but we also do have, you know, there's a large number of families that, that need our support with, you know, the, the recent CDC numbers are suggesting uh, we're seeing you know, increase of, increased rates of diagnosis. Um, to see that continuing increase, I think we need to really understand better the kind of etiology in a I guess I'm feeling some time pressure on that, I guess is what I'm saying, some time pressure for us to move forward very quickly with yeah. science so we can really identify these target treatments to, to help address the many families that are out there that, um, that have gotten a diagnosis, that have been struggling with a diagnosis for a long time. Um, but with that note, I'm very hopeful that we can, that we can do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I appreciate you being on the show. I mean, it's been great talking to you. Um, I know I, I talked a little bit about your background at the top of the show, and I'm sure people who are, who are in the Seattle area are probably familiar with both of the, the great, just organizations you're a part of. I mean, Seattle Children's Hospital um, and the Seattle Autism Center. I mean, it's it's an incredible program that I know so many families rely on, and uh, and I personally know a ton of people from University of Washington um, who have either studied there or or gone in resources mm-hmm. and helped there. So um, to to our audience, whether they're local and looking for something, but just uh, want to look you guys up. I know both organizations have incredible resources on their websites. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm assuming if, sure. if, our, if our listeners are curious about things that are going on in the programs, I'm assuming those two programs' websites are the best way to find out, you know, what new research is being done or, or what work you guys are all up to, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Just, uh, you know, type in Seattle Autism Research is going to plug up, uh, sort of plug, plug folks into a lot of different things we're doing, um, you know, Tap adding in Bernier in there will help get sort of specifically to my studies, which again are focusing yeah. mainly on, uh, you know, genetics, neuroscience, and, and behavior. So yeah, it'd be great. Love that yeah, folks no, are involved. I mean, that's the key. That's the yeah, it's a key thing. Like we can't do this work without families helping out. I mean, families are a, just a actual critical piece of this whole puzzle. So. Well, again, yeah. uh, I thank you so much. I, I I personally have learned so much today, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Truly happy to chat, for sure. Awesome. Great. Um, All right. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, Bye now. All right. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say after that. I, I, as I said, today's show was was just amazing, and I feel like I learned tremendous, tremendous amount. Um, So, as always, if you have questions uh, to us, let us know. More info at autismtherapies.com. Post them on Facebook um, because we definitely want to hear what you've got going on in your lives or, or answer any questions you have or any ideas you have for, uh, for future topics for the show. Um, hope you all have a fabulous rest of this week, a fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care, everyone. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode or visit our archives to listen to and download previous shows.